The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Man, this has been a week for me, and I, I wasn't sure how I would, uh, if I would talk about it, how I would talk about it. I'm still not 100% sure. I just need to tell you so that if any moments I just uh, go sit down, you can just pray. That'll be cool. Um, the short version is one of uh, my dearest, well, let me, back, let me back all the way up. God, I need you here. Okay, that's all I got. Um, I'm going to go all the way back. Anybody here got dad issues with me? Dad issues. Man, I got truckloads of those things. Uh, when I moved to Hawaii, anyone here from Hawaii? These people came all the way from Hawaii just to see me preach, you guys. They're not here for Disney at all. They're just here because we worked at the best job ever together at Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. Um, <laughs> no joke. I love that place. It, I moved to Hawaii when I felt like God was only a deity, and he was far away from me. And my life was at a place when I bought my one-way ticket, I packed my duffel bag, I packed my Bible, and that's all that I landed on the shores of Hawaii with, was a, this green, army green duffel bag and a Bible and confusion. And my mom picked me up from the airport, and she said, where do you want to go? And because I'm a beach kid, I said, just take me to any beach. I don't care what beach it is. We went to this beach called Old A's, and I just sat down, and I prayed. I I just thought, God, I I need you to be my dad. I need it. Because right now, I, I, I don't need you to be a king I don't need you to be a Lord. I, I need a dad because I don't know what to do. Now, that was in 2005. Fast forward to 2017. The person who was uh, inarguably the closest mentor, father figure in the faith that I had, have, I don't know how to say it, had, um, was arrested and accused of doing and confessed to doing some heinous, heinous things. And his kids, they call me Uncle Ryan. And I've known them since they were babies. I've changed, I changed his, his three oldest kids. I changed their diapers with the exception of the oldest one. Now they're 24, 21. Uh, this mentor taught me everything that, um, that I do, who I am. And then he became something that I hated because of things that happened to me in my childhood. So when I wrote this message, I wrote it before that happened. And uh, and I looked at it about three times this week. And I I just thought, I don't know what to say. If any of you have ever had that feeling of being let down, and not just let down slowly, but just someone let go of the rope that was holding you. That's where I'm sort of at today. And this, this is, you can't write this stuff. Each week we're doing statements about who we are in Jesus. You want to know what the first statement is? I, couldn't, I didn't have the heart to even put it on a slide, so I just put a blank. On my notes, it says, I am thankful. I'm thankful. So that's as far as I got. I usually write the sermon a week, two weeks before I review it the week coming, and I went back to review it every time, and it just said, I'm thankful. And I kept telling God, I'm not thankful. And then I'd put it away, and I'd go back to it, and I'd read it again, 
right at the top of my notes, 6-4-2017. I am thankful. No. Then I started thinking, like, maybe I should just run away. Just text Edwin and the team and Ken and be like, you guys do it. I'm running away. You'll never find me. They would know where to find me. I'd be right back where God has met me before. So here's the passage this morning. This is a Paul preaching. This is Paul writing. This is Paul praying. This is Paul in prison. And he wants to give this church the encouragement they need to make it through. So I hope that today I get this message for myself. Because I don't feel very hopeful. I don't feel very um, empowered. I don't feel very full. I feel empty and broken. So may this word reach me if it doesn't reach any of you. Verse 15 says this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Here's his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God bless the reading of his word. So this is a prayer. I I don't know if your prayer life sounds like that or not. My prayer life, um, I wish sounded like that. So much of my prayer life has centered on me. I went on for me. And then... You read a prayer like this, and this is what he's praying over his church. He says that you may have a spirit of wisdom to know him, that you may know the riches that you have from him, that you may see how powerful he is no matter what is going on in your life. This is the prayer that I need for me. This this concept of I I don't need every problem here solved. I don't need every of my perceived needs met. What I need met is that my soul needs more of Jesus. And if I get more of Jesus, then the other things work themselves out. Which is why if you've been here for any amount of time, people have asked me, hey, when are you going to do a marriage series? When are you going to do a raising your kids series? A, I won't do a raising my kids series because that's like a jinx, right? I don't want to be like, how to raise your kids to love Jesus. And then all of a sudden they're like drug dealers and they're just like killing people. And then I got to go take down those teachings from the interwebs. I don't want to teach a thing on marriage because my wife would come. And she would know all of my secret moves. 
this, this weekend, I, I had a, a four hours, the only four hours of my week that were like normal-ish, I went golfing. And it's so great with golfing. And, and I can't say, because what happens on the golf course stays in the golf course, but I can let you know that when I was out there with the guys, we, we sort of pal around and we're like, hey, uh, you know, does this work with, with your wife? We talk about our spouses and how we can navigate without blowing ourselves up in marriage. So if I'm still having those conversations, like I don't need to be teaching a marriage class. Just go read the verses in the Bible. Like, husbands, lay down your life for your wife. Wives, love and serve your husbands. Mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The end. How do you parent? If they do something that's knuckleheaded, give them the law. If they are brokenhearted, give them grace. The end. I just saved you literally 20 weeks of sermon series that are total rubbish. Okay? It's just, you're welcome. You can... Don't think that, that there should be some retroactive giving for that. But, but this prayer, he's not praying for the individual things. He's saying, I, I need you to have a spirit of wisdom so that you can know Jesus. Because when you, the more you know him, the more other things in your life will begin to go where they belong. And let me put it all the way down. Um, if you are riddled this week like I've been with pain and betrayal and anger. I don't need to just go to God and say, God, please help me deal with my anger. Because on one hand, man, I want to kill somebody. On the other hand, I, I literally have grace and mercy written on my arms. Do I show it? How do I do that? I don't know. I didn't just say, God, I need you to get rid of my anger. Here, here's what I did. Instead, I said, God, I am not believing in Jesus enough. I am not seeing Jesus enough. Because if anyone could be angry, it's you toward me. It's not you toward anyone else. It's not you toward murderers. It's not you toward adulterers. It's not you toward anyone. It's you and me, and I've offended you, but for some reason you sent Jesus to love me. I need to see that, God. I need your spirit to help me know how much you love me. And when we pray that way, that's when the anger will be expelled out. It's, it's just like with, with anything. You can, you can just try to suck something out, but there's a vacuum that's left over. If you don't, if you don't fill something good in the vacuum, what's going to happen? The vacuum's going to suck something in, no matter what happens. The only way that we can make it through these moments is when we have knowledge of Jesus. And I'm going to get to that word in a second. It has to move into our hearts, and literally, it pushes out the nasty. In this word, knowledge, it's, uh, it's something my, I just bought Jackson his first Bible. It hasn't arrived in the mail yet. His first, like, legit translated Bible. No pictures. There's probably some pictures. But, I mean, he's going to start reading it. And if he did what I did, you start reading in Genesis. Right at the very beginning of Genesis, you encounter this word knowing, and it's weird. Because it says, Adam knew Eve. And they had children. And then so-and-so knew so-and-so, and they made a baby. And then so-and-so knew so-and-so, and they made a baby. Now, if you haven't had the sex talk with your kids and they're in here, I apologize. Because kids, knowing is more than just knowing in the Bible. Knowing in Scripture, a lot of the time, especially in speaking with covenant terms, is talking about this intimate, radical, deep connection. Paul is praying, I want you to know Jesus. Not just know Jesus, have the facts, have the flow. I want you to know him, have the connection. 
have the emotions tied, the intimacy, where he's the first person you go to in the morning and the last person you say goodnight to at night, where you sing songs when you don't feel like singing, when you pray and your tears are coming out and it's almost like you can just feel God collecting him up in that bottle. Because if you don't know Jesus in an intimate relational way, if you just have facts about Jesus, you can pretend your whole life. You can fake it. I'm a firm believer in faking it until you make it with with dating. You fake it with your date who you want to marry. We all did it. If you're married, if you're not married, you're still doing it. You gave your best foot forward. You pretended like you showered every day, guys. <laughs> like you never saw, like you just thought that she woke up that way. You, you just thought all of these things because you're dating. That's not knowing. That's, that's playing with facts and what you see. But there's an intimacy that comes in marriage that is insurpassable and creates a love that's far deeper, far more grand and beautiful and secure. There's a love that when I wake up in the morning, I have what my wife calls dragon breath, and she still smiles at me. There's a love when you can be totally open and have someone look at you with all of your flaws, all of your deficiencies, all of your pain and past and luggage and baggage, whatever counseling term you use. Marriage ultimately is hopefully you find someone that looks at all of that, looks at your carry-on luggage to life's rough journey and says, I will go on the trip with you. With God, it is intensified a million fold. Because God has something that our spouses don't have. God knows our thoughts and our motivations. God sees everything, knows every idle word that we've screamed into our steering wheel. And he says, I see it all, and I'm going to go on this trip with you. This is the type of knowing that Paul is trying to drive into the church. If you want to pray for your kids, the single most important prayer you could pray for them is that they would intimately know and be connected to Jesus. Because that will be with them when they are going off into school and they go to college and they just explode with sin. And they are addicted to things. They're full of lust and pride. They're full of fears and regrets. You press Jesus in. It's not just this simple Christian answer like Jesus makes it better. Because if anyone told me that this week, I was going to throat punch somebody. Like the, the last thing a pastor needs is somebody to pastor them. That's what I needed. But, but I didn't need someone saying like, hey, have you read that verse? Yeah, you idiot. Like in 17 translations. I memorized it in the Greek. Get out of my face. You just got to love. Really? You're going to go with that one now? This is where I was. That's a bad space. I'm still in a bad space. I didn't need these surface-level things. I didn't need someone just throwing Christian bombs at me. Yeah, God works everything out together for good. Just never say that to somebody when they're in, like, immense pain. Wait till the pain is like, subsided. Wait till their tears are dry, at least. Because every time someone's done that to me when I'm in my pain, every time I've seen someone do it to someone else, God works everything out for good. 
I just want to give him a visceral soccer kick to the midsection and just say, it's for your good, dude. God's working it out. What I needed and what I need and what you need, whether you are having the best week of your life or the absolute bottom of the barrel, you're sleeping in the scum. You need more of Jesus in you. Otherwise, things will draw your heart away. Whether it's the best week ever and what's drawing your heart away is you have no worries. You have no fears. The paychecks keep coming in. You've got health insurance, no major illnesses. When you run in, your kids run up to you and say, I love you, I love you, I love you. You say, great, do the dishes. They say, I already did and I vacuumed too. That's you, that's you. You still need Jesus because in that moment, one of the easiest things to forget about is that Jesus is all that you have and all that you need for all of life. And this is the tricky part when life is good. When life is good, it creates a little flicker of fake light. And you think, this is all I need to live. This is, this is it. And you don't realize until you go into a real dark place that that little flashlight of temporary things, those batteries die out quick. Because this week, I, I'm, I'm grateful for my, my wife and kids. They, they know that I'm an emotional person already. Okay, I've said I cried during the Lion King. Finding Dory just ripped him out of me. I am a weeper. So when something happens like this, I'm like a full sobber. I'm like that, you know, that, that ugly girl cry face. You know, that's me. And I'm a moan sobber. So my ki- I can't hide it from my kids. I can't be like, <laughs> I'm like, ugh. And, uh, and my wife's like, just leave daddy alone. And my kids came up, my boys, and they said, daddy, can we pray for your friend? And they start praying. And then it's just like a cartoon, just shooting. And my son Jackson, he's an empath. He, he's very empathetic. He's, if he sees you cry, he doesn't have to know you from Adam and Eve. If he sees you crying somewhere, he'll just be like, <laughs> he's just like me. I love him. He starts crying. And then he gets mad. Daddy, I don't know why I'm crying. Because there's this, there's this moment where in the darkest place, I had nothing left. My kids came in, and they brought a little flicker of light. And it's good. We should enjoy the good things that God gives us. Enjoy the sunsets. Enjoy the moments with friends. Enjoy the good dinner with your loved ones. But know that those can never fight off. Those can never be strong enough to stand on when your world is crumbling. Because eventually the kids grow up and leave. Eventually, the money you have now, you may or may not have it in 10 years. The housing market could go up, it could go down. The stock market could go up, it could go down. There could be another world war. We don't know. The Bible says, store up your treasure in heaven because things here will be destroyed by moth and rust. So we need to aim our hearts so that when we're in our dark place, when we've got nothing left to stand on, nothing left to give us joy, no matter how much I love my kids, and you guys know, you tell me, I talk about them too much, I, I could not derive joy from them this week. I was so numb. There was no smile of theirs on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday that could even spark me to a little modicum of life. I needed something stronger. I needed something purer. I needed to know more of Jesus. I needed more of him to be in here coming out. And I love the verse in verse 18. It says, we have this revelation and the knowledge of him. We've got to get more of him having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. 
That is a weird phrase. Eyes of our hearts enlightened. So we got eyeballs, right? Anyone got eyeballs? There's eyes in our hearts. Our eyes and our hearts are by default born blind. We need light to break through the blindness so that our heart can see what it's supposed to see, so that our heart can love what it's supposed to love. It is easy for our hearts to love. Have you just noticed? Humans, we're all, for the most part, we're all love addicts. We love to be loved. It starts when we're younger. It starts when you're a child. A baby loves to be loved. They don't say that. They cry, and their version of love is, you feed me. And that's pretty much the same for most men, too. But um, we, we want to, and now here's the thing. With kids, they're just open and transparent about it. I just need to be loved. Love me. You can't love your kids enough, dads and moms. There's, you can't out-love them. Just go home today and say, that's it. He said, I can't do it. I'm going to love them more than they want. Now, here's the, the thing. After you're a child, you become what this world calls a teenager. Now, teenagers, man, they want to reject that love because here, here's what's happened. They still want to be loved deep down. Like, they want it. But they get this thing where they're just too cool. And then they go to high school, junior high, and they want the love of their peers, the love of their parents. They're like, I could care less. They say that. They don't mean that. They don't know better yet. But I did that. I was like, Mom, I don't need your love. I'm getting love at school. I'm going to go hang out with my friends. And it's, it's breaking my heart because my kids are getting to that age now where, like, okay, I get it. I'm already not cool, like, by default, although I let my wife dress me, so I think it stretches out a few more years of coolness. But what are my kids going to do when they're 14? And their dad's like the weepy nerd pastor at the church. You think they're going to want to go miniature golfing with me? I'm going to try to love them. Just love me, man. Come on, love me. And, and my kids are going to be like, oh, Dad, go cry with your other friends. Okay. <laughs> love me. Love me. Now, here's the thing. They haven't stopped wanting to be loved. But we all go through this identity crisis where we need to figure out what love gives us the most sense of love and being loved. So as kids, you just see the two people that feed you, and you're like, you must be gods. As teenagers, you look at your parents, and they're, they're like literally, for some reason, I don't know what mystical thing God did or our culture did, for somehow when they turn 13, parental IQs drop like 75 points. But then, good news for you parents of teenagers, take heart, because when they turn 24, you're like better than Albert Einstein. They come back, you were so right. Now, here's the same thing with love. They, they run because... Their, the eyes of their hearts, they're not, they're not understanding love and knowledge and a heart emotions thing. They don't know what's going to actually last because they need, they need their eyes open and their hearts. Adolescence is a period that we've all gone through, if you're through it, where life just beats you up just enough to where you start to see things are different than what I thought. You start to see not just with the facts, although some people, I know you pride yourselves like, I am facts. Facts don't care about your feelings. Yes, they do. Facts definitely care about your feelings, but your feelings need to be guided by what you know. So you know Jesus, the eyes of your heart, your emotions, the seat of who you are begins to open up in kids when they get enough facts in their head that, okay, wait, my friends will let me down. This pleasure that I thought would satisfy me, whether it's the popularity, pleasure, sexual pleasure, pain, anger, whatever it is, you think that that's going to give you the approval of the crowds? And it may for a bit, and then it fades. It's not until the eyes of your heart are opened that you can know the hope 
to which he has called you. And, and I, don't like, I don't really like that translation. It, I like it better if it read like, you may know the hope, to, uh, the, the hope of, of his calling. It's probably more accurate to the original language. That you're going to know the hope of his calling. So know Jesus intimately. So your eyes of your heart can be opened so you can see what true love is and you can respond appropriately with, with reciprocal love. And then you're doing this so that you may know, back to the knowledge and the intimacy, the hope to which he has called you. Hope. I am hopeful. I felt like one of those um, self-motivator guys this week. You know, the guys that tell you to say things back to yourself. I'm strong. You know, the, the main one I would do if we weren't in a church gathering would be the cool runnings one. You look in the mirror. You pit out to me. I'm a bad. No, just kidding. See, you thought I would do that. When I, when I was interviewing, she said, do you think you got the job? I said, as long as I don't cuss tomorrow. And I didn't, and they hired me. If I had done that illustration, they wouldn't have. I don't know if I'm hope, hopeful today, right now, just me confessing to you. I want to know the hope of his calling. He has a calling on all of our lives, individually and collectively. He has a calling. It's easy to shift our gaze from the hope that he is calling us into to something else. It's easy to give up. It's easy to give up on loved ones who we've been praying for for years to have a breakthrough or come to know Jesus or be healed. It's easy to give up on yourself. If you are stuck in a pattern of addiction and brokenness, you think there's no way I can't get out of this. God himself can't help me. It's easy to give up hope. Church, pack Jesus into your heart until all you have left is hope. Because that's all you'll have when you're at the bottom. And I'm only speaking like this because this week I've been at the bottom. It gives me hope to know that God would want to intimately know me. That he would want to retune my heart so that I could see him. And that I could see the hope that he provides us. Here's how I know that this is going to come to pass in our lives. Because he worked this in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The promise, the seal that we have, that we can have hope in the midst of the darkest times, that we can be thankful in the midst of thankless moments, is that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, if you think that this thing we do, church, is just about collecting some rules to make you look good on the outside, you would be terribly wrong. The Bible is a record of really, really bad people and a really, really good God and a really, really loving Savior. And if Jesus did not die and rise again, what we're doing, it's all for naught. And I remember, I, I, I can still remember every face around this table. I was uh, for my undergrad degree. It was a religion class. This is at a Christian university. So if you ever want to know, um, like we all live in these bubbles. Christian universities, they're a crazy bubble. I loved it both times I was there. <laughs> we had this class, 12 of us or so, and the teacher said, if it was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt tomorrow that Jesus was not raised, they found 
his body. They found some irrefutable dental records, his DNA, whatever. They, for some reason, we had it. We found it. There he is, Jesus of Nazareth. Would you still believe and do this thing that we're doing? It was in a, these are people training to be pastors and ministers of the gospel. So he starts going around the circle. And everyone goes, I would. I would still believe in Jesus. And you have to keep in mind, I didn't grow up like this Jesus freaky person. I had not read the Bible uh, until I was older in life. And then the next person, I would still follow Jesus, even if we found it. I would just believe there's someone, I would still follow Jesus. I would still follow Jesus. And then I felt it coming. Because when my sin or my sarcasm is welling up, I speak only a couple languages. I'm like terrible at Greek. I speak English moderately, but I am 100% fluent in sarcasm. And as it's rounding the table to where I'm sitting, everyone's like embracing Jesus. Even if he never rose again, they are for him. And the, and the, the professor says, would you believe? And gets to me. And I said, I would walk out of this class right now. I would go chase down girls and get drunk and make money. You should have seen the faces <laughs> on these people. Oh! Like, did I offend your sensibilities of reasonableness? Paul says in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. So if there is no Jesus, this is done. If he did not die in your place, raised again so that he could give you his spirit and his goodness, this is done. There is nothing else here. Which is why when we pray, it's got to start with Jesus, it's got to be filled with Jesus, and end with Jesus. There's nothing else. And no matter how many times I say it, I just can't get it through my head enough that life is literally what it says on the sign out there. It is all about Jesus. If you want a better marriage, cram more Jesus into your marriage. If you want kids that are decent human beings, get more Jesus in yourself because they're looking at you constantly. And then teach them about Jesus. But don't be a goofy Christian nerd about it. We don't have to pretend these fluffy religious fairies are flying around and God's only loving us when we say the right things and do the right things. Because God is knowing us intimately. He sees all and then still says, I love you. He sees every doubt. He sees every moment of weakness. He sees every frailty and says, I love you. I don't get that this week. Because things that are going on in lives of my friends and family, I don't, I don't get grace and mercy. It's hard. I don't understand how God could love certain people. But he does. I've, at times as a pastor, wondered how God could love some of you. But he does. I've at times wondered if this thing we call good news is so immeasurably better than we've ever tasted and seen that if we just got the tiniest little sample of it, it would light up our life to know that you are that loved, that accepted, that known, that embraced, that forgiven. To know that you've tried to run and he's kept on holding you. 
to know that no matter what you've done, what you are doing, or what you will do, He's before you and walks with you and is after you. When I talk this way, people always, always accuse me. Well, if you don't tell people to stop sinning, they're just going to keep on doing it. If you tell them they're that loved. And my response is always the same. They were sinning when I found them. They'll be sinning after I leave them. The only thing that I've ever seen that can actually compel people to not sin is when the explosive and expulsive power of Jesus moves into their life and it changes their wants because they have new eyes in their heart. They no longer want to do this thing. Now they want to serve God. Because I, I, I'm pretty confident that what God does not want is a bunch of white-knuckled automatons saying, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Heaven would be the most miserable place if that's all we did. He wants us to be so obsessed with Jesus that the concept of not sinning, it's just the other side of the coin. We live on the side of the coin that says you are loved and accepted because what Jesus have, has done, not because of what you do. And on the bottom of that coin is, now we probably don't want to sin. I know it's a short sermon today. I'm going to close with this. Uh, my wife and I are watching this show. It's funny. I don't even know if I should confess to watching it. I'm going to confess because I, I don't have anything to lose at this point. Because I've got Jesus and he's got me. They're watching this show called Blackish. Which is funny because I joke all the time that I'm a quarter black. And I know if you're black, don't be offended if you don't know me. Uh, my, my little brother's right there. Here's my reasoning. Ra Trent, raise your hand. He's an American war hero, by the way. Thank you, Trent. I love you. <laughs> Trent is half black, and I'm his half brother. So mathematically, <laughs> see what I did there? So we're watching the show. It's an absolute riot. His husband blows it on every Valentine's Day. Like, absolutely blows it, just like me. Any holiday that comes up, really, even if it's a minor holiday like in Colombia, I'm going to blow it. <laughs> but Valentine's Day, he blows it. And we were watching this show last night, and, and he keeps messing up. And, keeps, and then in their minds, they say, we should have done it this way. And they kind of reverse and go back and forth. And in the very end, they just have this moment where they look at each other, they see each other for who they are, and they say, oh, I like you. I'm glad I have you. If you get nothing from today, then this thought, that God has watched you blow it over and over and over and over again. He knows your thoughts, your motives. He knows the deepest, darkest, most vile, toxic poison in your soul. He sees you, and he says, I love you. I would do it all again. Now come and follow me. Let's pray. Father, um, it's for you. It's for your glory. It's for your name. And you are so radically for us. It shakes my core. You're so insanely in love with us and me that you would love me God, you found me not once but a hundred thousand times and you always brought me back.
Lord, there are people here who are far from you. Bring them back. Open the eyes of their hearts to love you, to know you. Help people this morning who are hopeless to see a glimmer of your divine hope. Help people here to bank on you because you are the only being who has conquered death. And now, God, let us all serve you and love you and find the fullness of our life in you. In Jesus' name, amen.